Hey everyone, this is Carrie Smith from Deadlands The Crossroads, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the last chapter, Catsbane defeats the lock, preventing the PCs from leaving Silmoral via Smuggler's Channel. He accomplishes this by the resourceful application of a Burning Hands spell to seal an explosive dark crystal inside the padlock itself. When he detonates it, the lock is blown to bits and they're able to pass. Between Shawnee's skill with lockpicking, Bazu's answered call for divine aid, and Catsbane's magic, the passage through Smuggler's Channel proves to be a real team effort. When they are through, the party heads for Domore, where they spend the rest of the day hiding out at the Happy Harpy Inn. From Domore, it's a three-day journey to the barracks town of Westmire. As they're traveling by night and resting out of doors, the party is desperate for real shelter by the time they arrive at Westmire, but not quite desperate enough to take their chances in town. Instead, they knock on a random farmhouse door and trade their labor with the man who lives there for food and shelter. Here, the action shifts to Whitestone Castle. Captain Krell is slowly but surely becoming the most powerful man in Silmoral. He has taken everything from Colfrey, including his room, his sword, and his bed. Of course, he has also taken his freedom by locking him away in one of his own oubliettes. If that were not enough, it would seem that he has even taken Colfrey's concubine. Krell doesn't know much about the exotic woman who visits him at night, other than that she appears to exist only to pleasure him, and that her name is Sivan. Chapter 45 Part 1 Day 125 Morning Party status Yellowfly 30 of 30 hit points Shawnee 22 of 22 Jace 31 of 31 Catsbane 15 of 15 Spells available Catsbane has memorized Read languages Magic missile Invisibility And Web Shawnee churned butter. Catsbane mended a pair of gloves. Jace sharpened knives and farming implements. Bazu mucked out the cow's pens, and Yellowfly took Briar out back to split logs. The gesture couldn't offer any real help. He had never held an axe in his life. Neither did he talk, but this didn't bother Yellowfly in the least. He had realized long before that Lord Rabbit must have told the gesture to keep his mouth shut until they reached their destination, and... Considering everything they had been through lately, that precaution made a certain amount of sense. Rosloff had been pleased with their work. He'd certainly not been joking when he said that there was a lot that needed doing, 
and the farmer had kept them busy for hours, toiling all through the afternoon and well into the evening. Rosloff was a widow, he had explained several times, and his children all worked in the city. He ran the farm alone, well, almost alone. He had his dog, Errol, to keep him company, and he hired hands during the busier seasons. Chores and odd jobs tended to pile up in winter, though, so he was grateful for their help. In payment, he offered them a hot meal and allowed them to spend the night in the hay barn, which was surprisingly comfortable. Perhaps it was the previous days of hardship and the recent toil that made them sleep so well, but in the morning the companions awoke fresh and in good spirits. Even Jace smiled a little as they roused themselves. He tried to make peace with Yellowfly as they walked the road to Black Creek, leaving Rosloff's farmhouse behind them. I'm sorry I kept on about Nudge, he began. The man means a great deal to me. Understood, replied Yellowfly. I'm sure I'd feel the same way, Chase. You know, after Colfrey's iron tanks, we lost our business. Yes, I remember you uh, mentioned that before. Well, my brother tried to start it up again. I was no good at smithing. Never was. But Nudge gave me a job working for him. And it allowed me to contribute, you know. Hmm, replied Yellowfly. He sounds like a good man. Better than I realized at the time, Jace persisted. I didn't figure it out until I was older, but Nudge was deliberately overpaying me. He could have just given me the money to help out my family, you see. But he knew it would hurt my pride, and he arranged it so I wouldn't have to feel like I was accepting charity. That's the kind of man he is. I hope to Vesaluna he's all right. I hope so too, replied Yellowfly, who didn't really know what else to say. He ended up just saying it twice. I really do hope so. An hour later, it was Bazu who made his way to the front in order to bend Yellowfly's ear. He also wanted to discuss charity, it appeared. A moment of your time, if you would be so kind, Master Yellowfly. He began. What's on your mind, Bazu? replied the other. Well, you know, uh, according to the followers of Sadal, one of the twelve true virtues is charity. Charity is a wonderful thing, agreed Yellowfly, after a minute hesitation. Ah, yes. Well, it occurred to me that that widower back there, Rosloff? Yes. Well, I believe that he was not entirely so well off, and seeing as how we were all footsore and exhausted when we arrived... You wonder why I did not simply pay the man for the accommodations. Well, uh, yes. Bazu scratched a temple as he replied. Yeah, I also noticed the farmer's financial situation. That, in fact, is the reason I did not offer him any money. I'm not sure I quite follow. Sadal's view on charity is most clear. <clears throat> the rich and the poor would both do well to remember. Whatever man may not himself use might deny the needy of what they require. Yes, well, in principle, I agree, said Yellowfly, looking Bazu in the eye. The thing is, if we'd crossed that man's palm with silver, he would never have forgotten us. Precisely my point. Mine too. Had we paid him in coin, he would have remembered us. Well, and that is what I wish to avoid. I see. I had not thought of that, said Bazu. Well, so long as we're talking, let me give you something else to think about. The party is traveling by day now on the main road and heading west from Rosloff's farm outside of Westmire to the village of Black Creek, and then, all going well, on to Nepule. I'll bet you know what Yellowfly wants to speak with Bazu about. He's going to invite the cleric to join his gang. 
I'm not sure if he's going to offer membership to Bazu the same way he did with Catsbane and with Cole and Tamlin before that. I mean, Bazu has proved his usefulness to the team, so from Yellowfly's perspective, it actually does make good sense to invite him in. He'd be an asset to the team, that is. But I wonder if Bazu would agree to join. On principle, he would probably refuse, but the circumstances give me pause. He's now a wanted criminal and the last free member of the Church of the Sacred Flame. Moreover, he feels a very strong duty to protect the Silverthorn, and the best way he can do that is to leave it with Yellowfly, but to also be personally close to it. You know, I'd roll for it, but with Bazu becoming a player character, one way or another, I think I should make the choice deliberately. Okay, I'm making the call. Bazu will join the church. He'll take the oath under the next full moon, which is due, and believe it or not, I actually keep track of this stuff in 10 days. Chapter 45, Part 2, Day 125, Morning. While the companions trudged along the snowy road, hunched against the wind on the way west to Nepul, Krell was just getting out of bed. He was alone, but this did not surprise him. The woman who visited him at night never stayed through till morning. Krell grabbed a fistful of the king's satin sheets and brought them to his face. He inhaled deeply, but the woman's intoxicating perfume was gone, and only the warm memory of her remained. <sighs> Sighing, Krell ran his fingers through his hair and found it damp with sweat. He had slept poorly and surmised that he must have had some bad dreams. He suddenly became aware of something small, moving under the sheets and tickling his skin. He threw back the blankets to reveal a fat black spider on his stomach. Ugh. He cried, swatting it away. Disgusting. Krell stood up and stretched. He was naked and the room was cold, so he reached for his clothes. He also selected a fur-lined cloak that actually belonged to Culfrey, before throwing open the door to the king's bedchamber and walking out into the solar. He made arrangements for a serving girl to have breakfast brought to him, and then sat down at Culfrey's desk to get some work done. It was only a few minutes before there was a knock on the door. That was fast, he thought. Still, he answered, You may enter. It was not the serving girl who appeared before him as the door swung open, but a burly man in black leather armor. On his neck, a huge boil poked through a thick mass of beard that connected his facial hair to his chest hair. The man was as pale as a ghost and wore an expression somewhere between shock and stupidity. Krell did not know him personally, but he could see at a glance that this was one of their prison wardens. Somehow, they all looked like this. Well, what is the matter? Can't you see I'm busy? The warden cleared his throat and tried to speak, but seemed to be at a complete loss for words. Come on, Wayface, out with it. I, I, I know not how to tell you what I saw, my lord. It, 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 it's unexplainable. Krell sighed and stood up from the desk, swiping up the king's sword, now his sword, as he did so. Show me. Before they went, Krell placed a chair outside the door, which he locked behind them. Hopefully the serving girl would have the good sense to leave his breakfast on it when she returned and found him gone. His eggs would be cold by the time he returned, he supposed, though he did not yet know that when he saw what the guard was leading him to, he would lose his appetite. The prison warden did not say a word as they descended to the ground floor, crossed through several rooms, and then took a dark stairway that led to the dungeons. The dungeon's hallways were torchlit, but the cells were mostly in gloom. The duo passed several of the solitary variety, including one containing High Priestess Erinesse, she looked up at them, emotionless and silent, as they passed by. They then traversed a hall with large open rooms on either side. Each of these rooms contained a dozen prisoners, 
many of whom were clerics of Zidal. Some sat dejectedly off by themselves, some prayed, and others formed small groups which talked in hushed whispers. When they saw Krell, a half dozen of these men limped to the bars, petitioning him. What's going on? There were terrible sounds in the night. Screaming. Captain, there are three men who have fallen ill. Two of them are old as well. Please show mercy and move them elsewhere. Why have we not been given any trial? I would pray for you, sir, that you do us wrong. Krell rolled his eyes and quickened his step, completely ignoring their pleas. At the end of this hall, there were two more solitary cells, and then a stairway that led to the second dungeon level. These two cells, Krell knew, held the elder clerics, Ickhart and Terragrim. The guard who led him halted well before he reached those two cells, and Krell could see real fear in his eyes. <laughs> Scoffing, he brushed past him and strode the remaining twenty feet to the end of the hall alone. Along the way, he plucked a torch from a wall sconce. This he held in his left hand. With his right, he drew Kalfri's sword. The barred gates of the cell at the far end were slightly staggered so that their inmates would not be able to see one another across the hall. If Krell did not have a torch in hand, these cells would have been almost completely in shadow. He reached the first and looked through the gate, poking the torch through the bars to see better. His entire body recoiled at what he saw in there. It was as though an invisible force yanked him roughly back by his shoulders, and if Krell had not had both of his hands full, they would have instinctively gone to cover his mouth. As it was, the captain managed not to retch, but just barely. He checked the other cell. Apparently, whatever he saw there was just as bad, for he looked away quickly with a grunt of disgust. Krell took a moment to regain his composure, then walked stiffly back to the warden, who wore an expression that somehow managed to convey the question, Now do you understand why I couldn't explain before? Krell tried to make his tone imperious, but when he spoke, his words came out in a husky croak. Clean that up! <clears throat> he cleared his throat and tried again, this time finding his voice. Clean that up! You don't need to get every bit of bone of flesh, just get most of it, and throw a bucket of water over the rest. But, Captain, I don't think I can. The guard looked like he might be sick. You can, and if you wish to keep your job, you will. And there's something else I want you to do for me when you finish with that. Now... Listen carefully. The Dungeons & Dragons Podcast UK presents The Secrets of the Silver City. Join us for a homebrew actual play fantasy adventure in which our would-be heroes set out on a mission across the plain of Innistrad on a mild, grimdark yarn. With information to gather and answers to find, their path leads them through many unexpected twists and turns, meeting some amazingly colourful characters along the way. Starring, Quinn Digrimon, the plucky paladin. Oh, somebody shot you! Now it's an attack. <laughs> Can't call that a messaging system. Ogvar Shurfort, a rugged ranger. Can someone get it out? I say, uh, that's not very sporting, is it? Elora Greyvale, the sassy sorceress. I'm taking a nap, guys. Her eyes roll back in her head, and she's just like, oh, and that's it. That's the last thing you hear from her. Mm, I do think so too. Ankado Chasseur. The all-consuming cleric. They're well prepared, aren't they? I think we might have been rumbled. Awesome! Oh. With immersive RP, combat, magic, humour and emotion, not to mention the inevitable disastrous dice rolls and the chaos that those bring forth. Join our all-British podcast crew in an entertaining tale not to be missed. Listen now on all major streaming services. Pick up the links from our Facebook group or website. Search the Dungeons & Dragons Podcast UK or via Twitter at 
Podcast Team UK. Between the Lions, the village of Black Creek. Midway between the wooden palisades of the barracks town of Westmire and the stone walls of Nepule is the forlorn village of Black Creek. Black Creek is where folks go if they aren't in the King's Army, but don't quite belong in Nepule either. In short, it's a place for misfits, ne'er-do-wells, criminals, lowlifes, and other desperate people. About 500 of these people live in the village, which has two dirt roads. One of them is the main western road that connects all lakeshore villages and towns to the capital city in a daisy chain. The other road descends perpendicularly to the south and terminates at a small church of Vesaluna, which doubles as an armory. Along the north side of the western road, closest to Blue Heron Lake, you will find Black Creek's numerous fishing operations, a cooper's, a smokehouse, and a salting house. The smell of fish is strong here, even in winter. In summer, it is almost unbearable for the unaccustomed. The south side of the road is lined with a hodgepodge of businesses and farmhouses. Black Creek's only inn and tavern is located right at the intersection of the two roads where it forms a T. It is called the Tumble Dye Inn, and it is a notoriously dangerous place. Most locals avoid it completely. Listeners might be wondering why I'm going to all this trouble to describe a town that the PCs will probably just pass through. Here's the reason. Yellowfly's gang have had a number of dangerous encounters lately, that's for sure. But they have not had a real combat encounter since episode 32. That's a long time, a really long time, for a game of D&D. The DM part of me thinks there needs to be a set-piece encounter here, one that isn't generated by rolling on a wandering encounter table. I had in mind a very rough place where fights would break out frequently, and the owner would have more than a little experience mopping up spilled ale and blood in the morning. There's a group of men who are always there, and one especially nasty man in particular, who basically runs Black Creek and has made this inn's barroom his court. If Tam or Cole were still with the party, they would know to avoid this establishment, but the others simply don't have much experience in this part of Camertine, and they would not be aware of any potential danger. They'll only know that they walked all day, the sun set hours ago, and they need somewhere to eat, to get warm, and to spend the night. I think I'll go ahead and dream up this encounter right now. Okay, I'm going to name this character Magot, though his friends call him Rosefingers due to his habit of scratching his rear end under his small clothes. Rosefingers' appearance is imposing. He's both tall and fat, weighing close to 300 pounds. He wears furs of animals he has killed and skinned himself. One is from a wolf, another from a black bear. Rosefingers' eyes are like little dark beads. He wears a voluminous beard of salt and pepper hue, and his brow is crested by a widow's peak, which gives him the appearance of always being annoyed. Rosefinger's arms are like ham hocks, and his fingers are like sausages. Looking upon him, one would be forgiven for thinking he could kill a man barehanded. In fact, Rosefingers has done this. Twice. In game terms, he's of the fighter class, and level 5. He's always surrounded by a handful of cronies, who are all of second level. By DM Fiat, I'm giving Rosefingers a strength of 17, so he'll get a plus 2 bonus to attack and damage on top of his 2-hit bonus of plus 3 for being level 5. He wears hides over a leather vest, stretched at the laces by his girth, which affords him an armor class of 12. For hit points, he'll get 5d8 with a min-out at half. Let's see. Oof, that's 3 eights and 2 fours for a total of 32. Well, considering Rosefinger's physique, that's really no surprise. Okay, I think that's enough detail for now. 
let's play out the scene and see what happens when the PCs meet this delightful fellow. Chapter 45, Part 3, Day 125, Night, Party Status, Yellowfly, 30 of 30 hit points, Shawnee, 22 of 22, Jace, 31 of 31, Catsbane, 15 of 15, Bazu, 11 of 11, Spells Available, Catsbane has memorized Read Languages, Magic Missile, Invisibility, and Web. Bazu has prayed for Cure Light Wounds and Detect Evil. Fly, couldn't we go someplace else? Shawnee did not like the look of the ramshackle Tumbledye Inn from the outside. To be fair, she did not much care for anything she saw in Black Creek, nor did she enjoy the smell. There is no place else replied Yellowfly with a wry laugh. If we want hot food and beds, this is it. Why not knock on a farmhouse door like last time? Oh, I don't think folks are very trusting around here, came the reply. We've seen how they look at us. It was undeniable. The few people that they had seen in Black Creek had stared at them, making no attempt to hide their interest. It did not make the companions feel welcome. Come on, we'll stay the night and be gone again by dawn. The sooner the better, muttered Shawnee, followed by a sigh. Those who knew her well, namely Yellowfly and Catsbane, were able to detect the change in her tone. Shawnee had just noticed the weathered sign outside the inn. Under the establishment's name, in the same faded paint, was a pair of dice showing the numbers four and six on their faces, respectively. The artist had clearly meant to portray a successful round of past ten, but the sight of it forced Shawnee to suddenly think about coal. The companions traded the faintly fishy smell of the village for the stale smell of ale and body odor within as they passed through the front doors of the tumble die. It was a dimly lit place with one large main room featuring a bar with a door behind it that presumably led to a kitchen. A wooden staircase with no railing ran up one wall to a second floor where the rooms for rent would be. Eight tables of rough wood populated the main room, but the place was mostly empty with about a dozen men languishing inside, playing a dice drinking and talking. There was no stage and no music. Behind the bar was a withered man of later years. He had deep hollows under his eyes and thin graying hair fringing a liver-spotted bald dome. His eyes flicked up at the sound of the door and he frowned in surprise, clearly unaccustomed to strange faces in his establishment. By the time the companions reached him, he had a line of leather cups on the bar. Ale all round. Yes, that'd be fine, replied Yellowfly. Kitchen's still open. If my wife hasn't fallen asleep back there, it is, replied the barkeep humorlessly. Well, what's in the pot then? Shawnee had been about to interrupt and tell Yellowfly that she for one had no appetite and intended to go straight to bed when the barkeep said, Pork bone soup. Most every day is pork bone soup in the winter. Might have some blood sausage too, if you're really hungry. Yellowfly was really hungry, but he said, Just the ale and the soup. A half loaf of bread if you got any. I will also take two rooms for the night. He would have preferred a big meal and three rooms, but he knew they had drawn the attention of the regulars and did not want to appear to have extra money. Aye, fine. And, uh, perhaps you'd prefer I bring it up to your rooms. The barkeep had also noticed that his regular patrons had taken interest in the newcomers. Very good, replied Yellowfly, taking his meaning. 
the barkeep passed him three large iron keys. Here you go then. Mind the third step on your way up. It's rotten. My thanks, said Yellowfly, taking the keys and turning toward the stairs. He was glad the men in the corner table had not spoken to them. They looked like they wanted to, especially the one in the middle, a large man who had been glaring at them since they entered. You! Yellowfly's heart sank. He didn't turn immediately. Perhaps that was a mistake. I said you! Not from around here, I think. Where you from, lambkins? That got a few snickers from the ugly men hunched around the fat man's table. (laughs) (laughs) Magot, perhaps I'll just call him what everyone else calls him, Rosefingers, is trying to pick a fight with Yellowfly. This is typical of the man who always seeks to intimidate potential threats to his status as the alpha wolf in the room. The interaction is very likely to result in violence. That's what Rosefingers wants, but there is a small chance that it won't. I'm going to make a reaction roll to see how this scene is going to skew. 2d6, higher is better. Normally, one would add a charisma modifier to this roll, but Yellowfly doesn't get a bonus having a charisma score of just 9. In fact, given Rosefinger's keenness to start something and his dislike of outsiders, I'm applying a minus 2 to the roll. The result I get is to determine how much and how badly this situation will escalate. There is a small chance to avoid violence, but, well, let's just say that these folks are not going to become best friends. Here's the roll. A 5 and a 3 makes 8, minus 2 is 6, which is on the low side of medium. I think there's a moment here where Yellowfly gives Rosefingers pause. Perhaps it's how he casually turns at the bar and pulls back his cloak to reveal the hilt of his sword, smiling blandly and maintaining eye contact as he does so. Rosefingers is going to have to roll again. Another 8 reduced to a 6. Hmm. The way I interpret this is that Rosefingers catches the sight of the blade and smiles a rotten-toothed smile before issuing some little challenger insult. That's quite a cut of lambkins. Don't you go hurting yourself with it. One more roll to break the tension on this game of chicken Rosefingers is forcing on Yellowfly. A 5 this time. Minus 2 is 3. Okay, I think I see how this is going to go down. Rosefinger's dark gaze flicked once again from Yellowfly's eyes to his sword, then back up. Expensive looking cutter too. I think we're in the company of a lordling here, boys. <laughs> While the men's lackeys giggled and sneered as required, Yellowfly glanced down and saw what the other man had seen. The twine wrapped around the hilt of the silverthorn had become loose, and a few inches of etched silver were visible in the spaces between the slack twine's looping. Tell you what, Lord Lampkins. Rosefingers rose slowly from his chair, drawing himself up to his full imposing height and revealing a sword of his own held in hand. The lackeys grinned like naughty children and fanned out. Yellowfly heard the sound of a door closing behind him and behind the bar, and knew that the proprietor had decided to make a quiet exit. They were on their own. Oh, oh, look at this. It seems I have a cutter on my own. The ugly smile spread even wider. And, as I'm in a generous mood tonight, I wish to welcome you to our fair town. The bill for your stay will be very reasonable. It's only going to cost you that sword. Fair? Yeah, more than fair, Rosefingers. One of the lackeys, a greasy-haired man with bloodshot eyes, provided an answer right on cue. That's what I think, too. Now, be a good little Lord Lambkins and hand over your sword. 
Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help to support it, there are loads of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and repost episode announcements on social media. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone for their support of the show. At this time, please allow me to share one of your kind reviews. I found this one through Chartable via Apple Podcasts. It was submitted by Tiny Elven Mitten. Tiny Elven Mitten writes, I've listened to 20 episodes thus far, and I am absolutely hooked. The story, the setting, and the characters are all incredibly well-crafted, and the narration just sucks you in. The fact that there's no pre-made plot keeps me at the edge of my seat, fearing for the characters' lives at every turn. On the other hand, the story is so well-crafted you forget that there's no overarching plot. It all feels grounded and logical. Cannot recommend enough. Thanks very, very much, Tiny Elven Mitten. My sincere gratitude for that review, which really brightened my day when I found it. So pleased that you're as interested to see what happens next as I am. At this point in Season 2, I am fully bonded to these characters, and so I, too, fear for the characters' lives at every turn. Let's say a little prayer to the Dice Gods and hope they're listening, because things are only going to get deadlier. Essential to my show is my excellent cast of voice actors, and this episode has another big one. In order of appearance... Jace was played by Kevin Berenger of TumbleDye Games. Find Kevin at kbearcreation.com. Bazu, another member of the TumbleDye team, was played by Andrew Fling. Simon J. Williams of Legend of the Bones plays Krell, as always, and there are two newcomers to the show. I'm very happy to introduce Kane McNamara in the role of the TumbleDye Inn's barkeep. Kane gave me permission to share his email and invite other podcasters to contact him for their own projects. It's kane.mcnamara.audio at gmail.com. Kane is K-A-N-E. McNamara is M-C-N-A-M-A-R-A. Finally, Rosefingers is given voice by Ricardo Ball. He's both a radio host and the vocalist in the band Just One Fix. Check out at Just One Fix NZ on Facebook, Just One Fix Band on X, or Just One Fix NZ on Instagram. Thanks to you all, Kevin, Andrew, Simon, Kane, and Ricardo. I had a blast mixing this episode thanks to your great performances. For listeners who'd like to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on X or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. If you prefer email, I'm at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Oh, hi there. Do you like D&D? Do you like talking about D&D? Do you like listening to people talk about D&D? Then I've got just the thing for you. Here at the Roll 4 Podcast, we talk about D&D. We explore in-game history and lore. We deep dive into races and classes, and we discuss our personal experience and offer advice to DMs and players both old and new. And we don't do it in this ridiculous voice. The Roll 4 Podcast. Find us wherever you get podcasts.